All right. I invite you to grab your Bible and open up to Acts 14, verses 21 to 28. I want to start today, actually, uh, before we sort of get into the text, by doing what we've done a number of times before, and that's giving you a question and inviting you to discuss it with a few others for a few minutes in a breakout room in a small group. So in just a second, you're going to get an invite to join a breakout room with three or four other people. Those of you on the patio, you can just discuss it with each other. As always, if you'd really rather not, you can decline the invitation and you can just sort of stay in the main service until everyone else gets back. So here's the question, and that is, why are churches important? Why are churches important? So take a couple minutes to do that now as you get your breakout room invitation. All right, welcome back. Uh, we'll, you'll see later how that question fits into to today's passage. We're looking at Acts 14, 21 to 28. And um, it's easy to read right over these verses. Paul and Barnabas have gone to a bunch of cities. They've told people about the amazing things God had done through Jesus Christ, how God was the, or how Jesus was the long-awaited king that God had sent into the world and that people could find forgiveness of sins by giving their allegiance to this king and trusting their lives to him, and then enter a kingdom which would last forever and eventually would bring about the restoration and the healing of everything. And we read the exciting stories in each city of how various people responded positively to this announcement of good news, while meanwhile, other people rejected it. But in each city, Paul and Barnabas had left behind some believers, and they've gone from city to city to city. And the question is now what? What's next? Should they go home? It would be easy to go home. They're currently in a place called Derby, and we're going to put up a map so you can see where that is. If they were to follow the road further from this city of Derby that they're in and go further southeast, we'll wait for that map to, to come up so you can see what I'm talking about. If they were to go southeast from Derby, they could pass through the Cilician Gates, which are a famous pass through the, the Taurus Mountains of Turkey, and travel down to Tarsus, which is where Paul was from. And then from there, they could have caught a ship back to Antioch, which is their home base from where they were sent out. And you could see that option, generally speaking, represented by that yellow arrow there um, on the map. But that's not what they do. Well, before we look at what they do do instead and why it's so important, let me just review with you the journey that they've been on so far. And you can follow the red arrows on the map to see this. It began, as I said, in Antioch in Syria. That's in sort of the upper right-hand part of the map. And there, there was a group of followers of Jesus, and Paul and Barnabas were sent out by them from there after some leaders who were sensitive to God's voice had sensed God saying to them that God had a mission for Paul and Barnabas to undertake. And so the two had been sent out. They traveled first to Barnabas's hometown of Cyprus, which um, it's actually not a town, it's an island. And Barnabas at that time was the leader 
of this small traveling team that went to Cyprus. And so it's, it's no surprise that he takes them first to his own home island. While there, though, Barnabas's young partner, Saul, had come into his own. Saul had been filled with God's own spirit. God had performed an astounding miracle through Saul. And as a result, we saw that the first recorded instance of someone actually responding to Paul's message in a positive way had taken place on Cyprus. And, and someone named Sergio Paulus had decided to become a follower of Jesus. And at that time, perhaps in response to all this, Saul began to be referred to by his other Roman name, Paul. And Barnabas is recognizing Paul's growth and what God is doing through him. And Barnabas steps back and lets Paul lead their journey. From this point on, it's no longer Barnabas and Saul, but rather it's Paul and Barnabas. Which is an amazing act of humility on Barnabas's part as a Christian leader to step aside and let a younger leader grow into his own. Well, next, the two cross the Mediterranean back to the mainland to a port city on the, the southern coast of what is now Turkey. And from Perga, they then trekked over 100 miles uphill up into the Taurus Mountains to the high plateau of Pisidia, where they came to a large Roman colony called Antioch, not to be confused with the Antioch back in Syria. This is Pisidian Antioch. And there they had told everyone in the Jewish synagogue that was there about Jesus, and they'd created quite a stir in that city. And so, as often was the case, some believed and others rejected the messengers and their message, hostily so, so much so that Paul and Barnabas had had to run for their lives to the next city down the road, which was Iconium, another Roman colony, um, almost 100 miles away, actually, further down the ancient Roman road there. And here things happen similarly. Actually, God, though, did some amazing miracles in, in this city. And again, the city was astir and divisions occurred and some sided with the apostles while others plotted to stone and kill Paul and Barnabas for blasphemy, probably. And so Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas had had to flee again, this time to Lystra, which was only maybe um, 20 miles further down the road. Here we saw last week things went crazy. The apostles did another miracle, and the Lystrans, they mistake Paul and Barnabas for Zeus and for Hermes, the Greek gods, and they try to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas, they tear their clothes, and they try to explain that, that they're actually telling people to turn from these pagan gods to the living God, but the whole thing doesn't go well. There's a lot of miscommunication, and before they can iron it out, their opponents from Iconium and previous cities have caught up with them and whipped up the fickle crowd and persuaded them to help stone Paul, which is what they do, and they leave him dead outside the city gates, or they think he's dead, but, but he's not dead. And somehow, after being stoned, he manages to get up, and the next day they travel all the way to Derby, another 60 miles away over rougher roads than the main paved roads that they'd previous tra previously traveled, historians and archaeologists tell us. Can you imagine what shape Paul might have been by this time? What shape he might have been in? 
stoned so badly he'd been left for dead. Well, in Derby, he and Barnabas tell everyone again the good news about Jesus. Are they tenacious or what? And here we read that a large number of people, as we come to today's passage, they, they decide to follow Jesus. No doubt the people of Derby were so glad that Paul and Barnabas hadn't given up the mission before they got to Derby, that they hadn't just said, you know, too much rejection, where I guess it's hopeless. But no, they persevered. And, and so that's where we find ourselves in today's passage. Paul and Barnabas are having some success. Though you wonder what shape Paul is in, he's probably bloodied and bruised. And it's decision time. Once they're ready to leave Derby, what do they do? Where do they go next? Do they go back home via Paul's hometown of Tarsus? No, they make another choice in verse 21. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. The very places they'd had to flee from, the very locations that they had been chased from and Paul had been stoned, they're going back there. All right, you can take the map down now. Boy, these guys are tenacious and courageous. Why go back, though? Well, today's passage tells us. And as I said, it's easy to read right past these verses and not realize how profound what they do next is. Because what they do tells us an incredible amount about this gospel, this good news that they've been courageously sharing everywhere. It tells us a lot about what it means and what the implications are of believing that Jesus is King, Lord, and Savior. This passage basically answers the so what question. Jesus is King and Savior, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah from the lineage of David, who the scriptures had been preparing us for, who would bring about the climax of history for the whole world, and, and who were inviting us to turn back to God, to turn to, to Jesus, to turn back to God by turning to Jesus, and that Jesus would forgive our sins and give our lives a new beginning. So what? What if that is true? What are the implications or the results, practically speaking, for us and our lives of the gospel message? Well, what Paul and Barnabas do next answers those questions. So let's notice first what Paul and Barnabas do not do. First, they do not just tell those who believe in Jesus, keep believing in Jesus, say a prayer now and then, and send a little money to the temple in Jerusalem to honor Jesus. This would have been the typical response in the pagan world at that time. This would have been people's default. Because this is all that the pagan religions taught that the Greek and Roman gods expected. Just a sacrifice now and then to show your homage, to, to honor the gods. You see, in these pagan religions, there were no congregations. There were no regular gatherings to worship. There were no communities of followers of those religions. There were just temples, but the priests ran those, and often they were funded by the state or by large donors, and temples didn't hold regular services. People just went once in a while to make a sacrifice. Maybe there was a plague like we're going through now, 
And people thought, well, the gods must be upset. Let's go honor the gods. Maybe they'll have mercy on us. It was occasional. It was something you did as an individual or as a family. It was that kind of religion. There were no congregations involved. And this approach to religion is still with us today, even in Christianity. You have your faith. I have mine. We live it out individually or as a nuclear family. And we go to our respective houses of worship once in a while for important occasions to show our honor to God. But, but in this kind of religion, we aren't really part of anything. We don't belong to a distinctive community. In other words, for many people, church is a place and a ceremony, not a community, not a spiritual family. And this is a pagan idea. And it's not at all what Paul and Barnabas have in mind for those who respond to Jesus Christ and the message about him that they're bringing. If this was all Paul and Barnabas had in mind, they wouldn't have gone back to all the cities they'd visited to do what we see them do here in this passage, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, the second thing that Paul and Barnabas do not do is they don't go back to the cities where they've been to gather all the new followers of Jesus for a march on Rome. That's what some religious people would do today. If Jesus is king, let's go proclaim him in the halls of power. Let's force the issue. Let's demand that Caesar step down so Jesus can take his rightful place as king. He's Lord of the world after all, not Caesar. Now, I realize the Jesus movement was so small at this point that it would be foolhardy to march on Rome. And I realize that Rome was an empire, not a democracy. So it could be your death sentence to declare Jesus as the true king in Rome. And I'm not arguing at all against political involvement for us today. I'm just pointing out that politics was not where Paul and Barnabas's hopes were even though their message was in some ways very political. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. But how they live that message out is not to challenge the authority of Caesar directly in the capital, in the seat of power. What do they do then? How do they encourage their converts to live out their faith? Well, they go back to the places where these new followers of Jesus were, and verses 22 and 23 they strengthen the disciples, they encourage them to remain true to the faith, and they appoint elders for them in each church. Now notice how many religious words we read in this short passage. And, and let's add verse 21 as well, where we have, depending on your translation, they won a large number of disciples. This is in Derby, or they made a large number of disciples. We'll look at that in a minute. So, so we have this word disciples, then we have the words elders, and appoint, or depending on your translation, ordain, and then we have the word church. Well, here's the problem with, with religious words like these. We've used them so much over the years that their meanings have changed. Linguists tell us that that's what happens all the time with words that get used a lot, that their meanings begin to evolve with use. And so what we think these words mean because of how we use these words today isn't what they actually meant back then. So let's take a closer look at these words that, 
that express what Paul and Barnabas do, which again is surprising and says a lot about the results and the implications of the gospel. First, first word, verse 21, Paul and Barnabas make or win, depending on your translation, a large number of disciples. It's interesting that, that the verb translated make or win disciples, and it's one verb in Greek, that it's the exact word used in the Great Commission, the famous last words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I taught you. And then here in Acts, Paul and Barnabas won or made a large number of disciples. Same verb. Notice the language here. They are not winning souls or converts or believers. They are winning or making disciples. What's a disciple? Well, it's someone who's committed. Someone whose life is changing, who's growing, who's being transformed to reflect the life of their master. In this case, Jesus. Paul and Barnabas are not just trying to get individuals to make decisions to accept Jesus. They are rather trying to form a new kind of people. A people who live differently, who live by the teachings of Jesus, who live the way of the kingdom of God that Jesus taught. That's what a disciple is. Giving an occasional sacrifice or attending a an occasional ritual to honor your God isn't the point of the gospel. Marching on the halls of power isn't the approach, although in a democracy there's certainly a place for that. But what the gospel primarily calls for is a changed life, and then as we'll see, a community of changed people who are living out in the world a new way of living and walking and being. That's why I stopped years ago praying for people that I care about, that they would come to Christ or accept Christ. I don't pray that anymore. I started praying more biblically because of reading passages like this. And I started praying that the people I care about would become disciples, that their lives would be transformed, that they would wholeheartedly and fruitfully live for Jesus and his kingdom. Tom Getman of World Vision puts it well. He says, it is not our responsibility to make people Christians and get them baptized into a particular denomination, but rather to help people decide to follow Jesus and his radical message. Maybe this is why the New Testament writers only use Christian three times, but disciple on 269 occasions. Writer and church planter Neil Cole adds these jolting words. He says, ultimately, each church will be evaluated for only one thing. It's disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. It's not, or sorry, it does not matter how good your praise, your preaching, your programs or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. I think Paul and Barnabas would agree. They are committed to making disciples. That's why they go back and risk their lives to, see, to do what we see next. So second word, church. Back at the time of Acts, do you realize that church was not 
particularly a religious word. Church was not a particularly religious word. Synagogue was, but not church. Church, ecclesia in Greek, was a word used in the broader secular world, and it basically meant assembly. It was used of town political gatherings. They were ecclesias. It was also used in the Old Testament for the people of Israel when they gathered as a nation. They gathered as an ecclesia. So here's the thing. When we hear the word church in the Bible, we have to try to not think about what we think of as church today. Their churches looked very little like ours. And they didn't mean what we mean by church. So if church is an assembly, likely with stronger political connotations than religious connotations, what does this mean? What does it mean when a group of disciples, followers of the King, the Lord, gather together? When those committed to living according to a different kind of kingdom gather together? It means that we have a different sort of empire taking shape a different sort of political reality, a different sort of nation. You could say that an ecclesia is a town within a town. It's a different kind of city within a city. It's a different kind of nation within a nation. Sure, the church is religious in a sense, but it's more than religious. It's a way of living under a different king in a different kingdom. That's the reason for today's key biblical uh, truth. If Jesus is Lord, then we should gather in communities expressing his kingdom and start more communities. That's why Paul and Barnabas risked their life instead of going home to trek back to the places they visited to encourage and to strengthen these churches And then, as we'll see, to appoint leaders for these assemblies, these new communities of disciples who are together serving a different king and living out a different kind of kingdom. And that's what we want to be at CBC. What what I'm trying to say is that following Jesus is real. It has to do with real life and real people and real leadership. It's not just a spiritual reality in your heart. So, and so you, you can... Flying a plane might look quite complicated, but all machines, however complex, are based on very simple mechanisms. We have divided the basic mechanisms into eight... Let's mute all, uh, and then I'll unmute my... Thank you. I don't know if that was a Zoom bomber or what, but we took care of it. Where were we? Okay, what I'm trying to say is that following Jesus is real. It has to do with real life and real people who have real leadership. It's not just a spiritual reality in your heart. And so you can live your life as a lone Christian and you can honor God now and then with a religious ritual. No, to to follow Jesus means to live in a real alternative kingdom with other followers of Jesus who are citizens of that kingdom too. And it means to live in a very different way than how everyone else is living, which is the reason for the apostles reminder in verse 22, 
we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Many hardships. Why? Because the kingdom of God is clashing and colliding with the kingdoms of the world. What are the kingdoms of the world all about? They're about power and money and control. Securing influence and security and prosperity for yourself and for your people, even if it's at the expense of other people. Why do you think we have so many political conflicts going on right now? And always have. But the way of Jesus is different. It's the way of weakness and of love. Of giving up for the sake of others. Of wanting the best for others. And Jesus' kingdom is pressing in because a real countercultural kingdom is forming among Jesus' disciples. And so there are sometimes clashes and hardships between this Jesus community and the world around them, which is living a different way and is committed to a different goal and ethic, purpose. Paul and Barnabas experience this hardship, don't they? And they warn these disciples, that they will experience it too. That's why the two apostles go back to them to encourage them, to strengthen them for what could be a hard road and to gather them and organize them into assemblies, into communities who live life together in a very real and countercultural way. All right, third word that shows us something about the implications of the gospel. We've got disciples, we've got churches, now we've got elders. Verse 23, depending on your translation, it says, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders or ordain elders or have elders elected. I think probably appoint elders is the best translation, although that's debated. Okay, so elders. Again, here we have a very familiar word, at least for a church like CBC. And so we have to be careful we have to be careful not to hear elders and picture CBC elders because these are not the same thing. What was an elder in the time of the book of Acts? Well, it was an old man. The assumption back then was that if you live to old age and most people different, the average life expectancy was in the 40s or the 50s at that time. But if you survived long enough to have gray hair, you were probably wise. You had probably picked up some wisdom and some experience along the way. And, and so you enjoyed honor in your village and in your community. These cultures were honor and shame-based cultures where older men were honored and they rose to the top, so to speak, of the society just because they were old, assuming they hadn't done anything terrible to bring dishonor on themselves along the way. And in that culture, these were the people who led. The men did because these cultures were patriarchal as well. And so towns were led by elders, by old men. Cities were led by old men. Synagogues too, which were not only religious communities, but community centers and cultural centers of support for the Jewish minorities living all over the Roman empires, synagogues were often led by elders. In Acts, we read about how the city of Jerusalem was led by elders, corporately led by a group of old men. And since Paul and Barnabas are forming alternative assemblies of disciples, towns within towns, cities within cities, 
to live out together a very different kind of kingdom, Paul and Barnabas do what was logical for them to do in that culture. They make sure there are old men to lead these assemblies. Just like there were old men leading the cities of Lystra or Iconium and likely old men leading the synagogues in those cities. Now, does that mean we should have old men as elders too? Well, the text doesn't say thou shalt likewise appoint elders to lead your assemblies. It simply describes what Paul and Barnabas did. And we don't feel the need to do everything that Paul and Barnabas did on their journey. They tore their clothes when they were distressed. We don't feel the need to do that. They preached in the synagogue first before they told anyone else about Jesus. They rebuked an old man, and, or rather they rebuked a man, um, this was back on Cyprus, and said he would go blind for a while, and he did, etc. We don't feel the need to do all those things. So the question of elders today is an important one, but it's one that's bigger than this passage, because today's passage is only giving us one little piece of data to consider, which is what they did on that trip through Iconium and Lystra and Pisidian Antioch. I think the important takeaway for us from verse 23 is not necessarily whether all churches today should be led by old men, but rather that Paul and Barnabas are forming real communities, real assemblies with real leaders. And the purpose of it all is to help these people live real lives as disciples together in a real kingdom, which is really different from the kingdom of Rome that they're all a part of. That's the implication of the gospel. Not an individual conversion, which results in the occasional visit to a religious building, not primarily a political overthrow, but definitely a new and different kind of very real political reality. Not just private religion or spirituality, but a new kingdom, a new empire that coexists beside and in tension with and in the midst of the other empires of the world so that there's friction and there's hardship for its disciples because this new kingdom is so upside down and contrary to the other kingdoms. Which, by the way, let me just interrupt here for a second. Whatever political party you are, if your beliefs and your values are not in conflict with your party and on at least a number of points, you need to go back and consider whether you have let Jesus and his kingdom impact your beliefs and values. If you don't have serious critiques and tensions with your party, whichever party it is, your, whatever your party of preference is, then Jesus hasn't informed your politics yet. Because just go back and read Jesus' teaching in the, King, the Sermon on the Mount again in Matthew 5 to 7. The way of Jesus is in serious tension with the ways of both political parties today. Followers of Jesus are called to live together in a seriously countercultural kingdom as we follow a seriously countercultural king. That's what unifies us as a church Jesus, the grace of Jesus and the way of Jesus. So just by way of conclusion, what's the result of the gospel? What's the result, the implication of, of the message that Jesus is the true King and Savior of the world? Well, in this passage, we see that the gospel prompted Paul and Barnabas to retrace their steps 
to go back to places where their life had been in danger, to make sure that the disciples, the followers of Jesus they had been making in those places, were being gathered together into assemblies, countercultural communities with real leaders and a real alternative life of their own in these communities that was in tension with the kingdoms of the world, so much so that there would be hardships and troubles for them. So question, is that what we are today as a church? Is that how you view church? Is that how you view CBC? Is the gospel we claim to believe forming disciples of Jesus? People who really give their allegiance to Jesus in a way that changes their lives in in practical everyday ways? Or is church just an optional spiritual thing? Or is it a real, uh, is is it that? Or or is it on the other hand, a real countercultural community? living out an alternative kingdom, an alternative political reality in this world, upside down, based on love and weakness, servanthood, not power and selfishness, so that we're living in tension with the world around us. That's what Paul and Barnabas are after. That's what their goal was and their mission was, to form those sorts of communities, those sorts of alternative outposts for Christ's kingdom all over the Roman world. Why? Because Jesus was king. Really king. Really Lord of the world. So let's respond now with worship. Invite you to sing as we sing the closing song.